the end of today's message, I'm going to offer a chance for many of you to be baptized. That is why I'm here in my swimming trunks. <laughs> because I will be doing it after every service. I know some of you thought, saw me and thought that this was the start of some commercial where Roy Williams and come, Coach K come sliding out. <laughs> not going to happen. And maybe you're like, well, it's not appropriate for a pastor to dress like that. Look, I'm just doing it to make a point. I know that for many of you, see, the idea of getting baptized or getting wet in front of a lot of other people seems humiliating. So the idea is, if I will humiliate myself in front of you, then maybe it will make it easier for you, okay? It's all for you, baby. It's all, all for you, all right? And if this attire offends you, then I've got two words for you, okay? Speed O. You just be thankful I didn't... <laughs> you be thankful I didn't show one of those, all right? I was expecting a standing ovation on that one, by the way. I, I know immediately some of you listen to that and you just say, well, no, 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 I, I couldn't get baptized today. I don't have any clothes. We have those for you, okay? And any other objection that you come up with, I am going to knock out or do my best to. Uh, I'm going to set up all the objections that you would have to this at the end of today's message, and then I'm going to knock them down one by one, kind of like that whack-a-mole game that you play at the fair. That's what I'm going to do, all right? But first, what I want to help you do is understand baptism from Jesus' life, okay? You see, we are in a series called Unexpected where we look at some of the most unexpected things that Jesus said or did in his encounters with people. He often <laughs> said or did things that people were completely not expecting and which shattered the mold that people had for Jesus to fit into. Uh, my kids say some rather unexpected things. I remember when, when Karis, my oldest, was only four, we were in the backyard playing on the slip and slide, and uh, Karis comes up completely out of the blue and says, I need some more sunscreen for my luscious bod. Uh, I have no idea where she gets that. You know, I, I look at her mother, and I'm like, what, what are you teaching my child? Um, one of the things that's been fun has been watching my kids learn about God um, and the way that they say and think unexpected things or learn unexpected things. I was tucking, again, Karis into bed uh, when she was between two and three, and I could tell that she was a little scared. Uh, so I just, you know, as I lay her down in bed, and I, I kind of pat her on the head. I'm like, sweetheart, there's no reason to be scared. And she kind of fills in because she's heard this before. She says, because God is always watching us. And I was like, that's right, that's right. Where is God right now? Now, keep in mind, whenever you know I talk to her about God, it's usually at bedtime, and I would point up, so when I, when I say, where is God right now? She goes, he's in the vent. He's in the vent. <laughs> and it just made, what I love about my kids, or any kid, is that they, 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 they just accept things about God or about anything that they don't have categories for. You know, Karis, in her mind, is like, well, nobody else lives in the vent, but God does, and that's cool. You know, that's, that's where God lives. That's all right. You know, that's, that's partially, by the way, what Jesus meant when he said, you got to come to God like a little child. Sometimes you have to put down your categories, and you have to put down your categories that you have for God, and instead you just learn from God. You let him define himself. I'm not saying, by the way, that you are supposed to check your brains at the door and accept illogical stuff, you know, fairy tales. I'm, I'm just saying that sometimes... Jesus is going to shatter your categories and you got to determine whether or not you're going to reject him and hold on to your categories Or hold on to him and let him bust up some of your categories 
Otherwise, it's like that old, you remember that Stepford Wives movie? Anybody, you, you remember that, that thing where you got guys who are able to design the wives exactly the way they want them, but they end up being robots? It's not a relationship. A relationship was with somebody who is able to define themselves. And many of us have a relationship with God where God's not a real person. God is something that we want him to be, right? And you can't do that. It's kind of like when you walk out into the light. You know, if you've been in the dark, you've been in a movie, and you walk out of the theater, and all of a sudden the light just overwhelms you. And, you know, you got a choice. You can either stay there and let your eyes adjust to the light, or you can demand that the light change by going back inside. Right? When you encounter Jesus, a similar thing is going to happen. It's going to overwhelm you. And what you've got to decide is whether or not you're going to stay in the light. As Jesus said, abide in the light. And let your eyes adjust to whether you're going to change the light to be what you want it to be. But see, if you, change, if you stay in the light, then Jesus says you're going to end up changing. You're going to end up knowing the truth. You're going to end up knowing me, but it's going to be a little painful, and you're going to have to let your eyes adjust. Well, today, we're going to look at some of Jesus' unexpected behavior. In Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is going to do something in Matthew 3 that's going to surprise everybody going to surprise everybody. So if you have your Bible there, you may want to open it to Matthew 3. And listen as I read it here to you. Matthew 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John. John to be baptized by him. Verse 14. John would have prevented him and said, I need to be baptized by you. You coming to me? Somehow people in the New Testament never got the memo that they're not supposed to correct Jesus. I, I don't get this because it seems like Jesus is corrected more than any other person I've ever known. Just reading his life, people are always saying, you can't do that. That's wrong, right? They didn't get the memo. And Jesus is like, all right, I get it, but let it be so for now. Because thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. That's a key phrase, right? You should star that. You should underline it. I'll come back to it. Um, I'll come back to it shortly, all right? And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom, with whom I am well pleased. Here is the unexpected thing, all right? The unexpected thing is why, as John expressed, is Jesus being baptized? You see, John's baptism was specifically called a baptism of repentance. When you got baptized, you were saying that you were repenting of your old life and you were wanting to begin a new one. So the question is, what did Jesus have to repent of? Right? I mean, yesterday, my oldest daughter, Kara, said uh, about my youngest daughter, who's 16 months, she said, if Raya, she was explaining to Allie, my middle daughter, if Raya's a good enough girl, then one day she'll go to heaven. So I looked at Karis, and I'm like, Karis, has there ever been anyone who's been good enough to get to heaven? And she says, Jesus. <laughs> and I, as she could tell by my face that that wasn't the answer I was looking for. And she went, you met anyone on earth? And I said, yes, anyone on earth. And she said, no one. No one has been good enough to get to heaven. Right? That, Jesus doesn't need to be baptized. He's the only one on earth who never needed to repent of anything so why is he being baptized that's a great question right that's the question you're supposed to ask i'm glad you asked so i will spend the next 35 minutes explaining that something has been happening you see in the book of matthew that is very important 
In the first chapters of Matthew, it appears that Jesus has been retracing the steps of Israel. Matthew chapters 1 and 2, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus flee to Israel because they're trying to escape a genocide. Herod was trying to kill all the children. Well, after two years, it's safe to come back. So in Matthew 2, God appears to Joseph in a dream and tells him to bring Jesus back. What is significant about that is Jesus is coming up out of Egypt into Israel just like Israel had done at the beginning of their nation. Right? In Matthew chapter 4, the chapter right after chapter 3, right? he's going to go into the wilderness. Jesus is going to go into the wilderness for 40 days to wander just like Israel had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. While Jesus is there, he will undergo basically the same three tests that Israel went through. But unlike Israel, Jesus is going to pass all of them with flying colors. By the way, it's interesting, when you get to chapter 4, every time Jesus quotes a verse in response to Satan, he's quoting from the book of Deuteronomy out of that time of that testing. In Matthew 5, Jesus is going to go up on top of a mountain to give the law just like Israel received God's law from the mountain but unlike Israel Jesus is going to keep it perfectly you see the whole point is Jesus is taking their place he is walking the steps that they had walked but living the way that they were supposed to live you see now Matthew 3 what's happening is Jesus being is being baptized in their place repenting not for his own sin but for theirs see and for ours he is going to save us save them and save us by substituting for us he will live the life that we were supposed to have lived and then he will die the death that we were condemned to die in our place in so doing verse 14 he will fulfill all righteousness not for himself, because he was already righteous himself, but for us, because we were unrighteous. And that make sense? And when Jesus comes up out of the water, he's going to hear these words, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. But see, now, because we have traded places, because he was baptized for sins that he had not committed, a baptism that he did not need or deserve, I can hear from God in his place, J.D., you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. A description that I do not deserve. You see, the key word in Jesus' gospel, his whole message is the word substitution. It's what separates Jesus' gospel from every other religion. This is the one concept that if you don't get it, no matter how much you know, Right? You don't know anything about Christianity. Every other religion teaches you that you must do to please God. Go here. Say this. Don't do this. Do that. Rub this. Touch that. Right? What Jesus taught, the gospel, on the other hand, is about what Jesus has done for you, not what you do for him. In every other religion, the prophet is a teacher that teaches you what you must do to earn God's favor. But in Christianity, Jesus is a Savior who does for you what you could not do for yourself and gives it to you as a gift. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, God had made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for me, 
so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. That's what was going on at the cross. You see, my sin was shameful, so Jesus was mocked in my place. My sin was wicked, so Jesus was beaten, lacerated with a whip until, as Roman historians, as Jewish scholars would tell us, until his intestines would have hung down to the ground, nine-inch nails put into his hands and his feet, a crown of thorns shoved onto his head so that his face would have been horribly disfigured. In fact, the Bible says that his face was so beaten in that he didn't even resemble a man any longer. And you're like, well, that's disgusting. That's the point. Your sin is disgusting, and Jesus became your sin. You want to know why the cross was so horrific and bloody? It's because our sin was that. And Jesus became our sin. And because he did that, because he took our place, I could become his righteousness. I could occupy his position. His perfect record could be given to me. His future, his power, his approval to God all became mine. Because he substituted and he took my place. Through his death, I would live. In 2007, in that shooting, that terrible shooting tragedy at Virginia Tech, there was a story that came out later after everything was said and done that was pretty incredible. One of the favorite professors there was a 77-year-old Jewish Romanian refugee named Liviu Librescu. Right, he was a survivor. This is a pretty remarkable man. He was a survivor of the Holocaust, had been a child in one of the concentration camps and survived. Right, after he got out of uh, the Jewish Holocaust, he was alive during the time that the communists took over Romania and, and, and the bloody, brutal um, regime that they put in there. He eventually escaped to America right, and came and, and, and got his degree and ended up teaching at Virginia Tech. Well, that morning when the gunman came in and started shooting into classrooms, this frail 77-year-old man stood at the door of his classroom and blocked it with his body, shouting at the 20 or so students that were in his class, telling them to escape through a window. All 20 of them did, and this old man was shot to death, forming literally a shield for them so that the bullets would go into him and not into the students behind them. You think about all that that professor had gone through in his life, right? All the experiences that he had gone through, which he was able to share with his students, they were able to learn from without them having to go through it themselves. He let them share in those things. And then he gave the ultimate sacrifice, letting his body shield the bullets so that his students could live to see another day. That professor died so that the students could live. This is what God, you see, has done for you. In Jesus' body, he shielded us from the punishment we deserved so that we could live through him. You see, substitution. That principle is hard and difficult for lots of people to get because the whole principle of substitution attacks our pride. Right, I'm going to give you an example. When somebody, you're eating lunch with them out and, and they pay for you, what does your pride obligate you to do back? Yeah, when, they, when, when they win the war over the check, you know, you're like, oh, well, I'll get you next time or I'll pay you back. Right? Our pride demands that we act that way because we don't like to feel like we're helpless, like other people have to take care of us. We like to be able to say, I can take care of myself. Hey, you ever been in one of those situations where you took somebody out to lunch and you had every intention to pay for them, right? And, you know, you reach inside of your pocket if you're a guy at the end of the, the, the lunch and you're like, oh, where is the wallet? 
You know, and all of a sudden that, that feeling of just absolute helplessness floods over you because it's not that you don't want to pay, it's that you can't. Or even better, has this happened to you on a date? It happened to me like routinely. I don't know why. It was like God cursing me. And maybe God was just making sure all my dates failed until I got to the right one, Veronica. But, but you know, for, for, it just, you're like, oh, and you have to, you just, I mean, it's the most humiliating moment of your life when you look across the table and you're like, I did not mean to do this, but I don't have any money. You're going to have to pay today. Right? We hate that. We hate that because we don't like to feel helpless. Right? But the only way to receive the gospel is admitting total helplessness. Christ did not give you a way to save yourself. He did the work entirely to save you, all of it. You owe a debt you could never, ever pay. So Christ, in his love, paid a debt for you that he did not owe. He took your place. All right? Now, I said all that to show you this. Watch this. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Then, then, then in your Bible should be circled or starred, okay? If you don't have a pen, you should pull out a tube of lipstick and smear it. All right, if you don't have that, just prick your finger, dab it in blood. Whatever it takes, notice that word then. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Spiritual highs are usually, at least for me, followed by intense lows. It's because I guess Satan just hates what God is doing in you, and so he attacks it with all his fury. When God is doing something great, or he wants to do something great, you can count on it, then the devil. Or I've heard said, new levels equals new devils. And that's what's happening. All right, verse 2. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, watch this, if you are the Son of God, I want you to notice how Satan attacks him. He is going to do it twice, once here in verse 3, and then again in verse 6, in the second temptation, Satan is going to say to Jesus, if you are the Son of God. And what's significant about that? What had the Father just said to Jesus? You are my beloved Son, right? And Satan is saying, well, yeah, I know God said that, but if it's really true, you should be able to, verse 3, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Verse 6, you should be able to throw yourself down off the temple and God would catch you. You see what Satan is doing? He's trying to get Jesus to doubt the identity that his father has declared over him. You see? Now verse 8, watch what Satan does for the third temptation. This is a little subtle, okay? But stay with me because this is the key to understanding the whole deal. Verse 8. Again, the devil in the third temptation took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And Satan said to Jesus, all these will I give you if you fall down and worship me. He is offering to Jesus the rule of the world. Is that not what Jesus was destined for? Yeah. But Satan, watch this, but Satan is offering it to him without having to go through the cross. Satan, watch this, is trying to do away with the centrality of the cross in Jesus' life. There are your two things that Satan is doing. He is trying to get Jesus to doubt his identity and trying to get Jesus to downplay the centrality of the cross. Here is what you should learn from that. Satan's central mode of attack is those same two things in your life. To make us doubt the identity given to us by the Father and to remove the centrality of the cross from our lives. 
you should be busy scribbling that down, okay? Because I'm not telling you something just like trivia. I'm, this, is, this is what your enemy is doing for you, to you. In fact, let me combine it into one statement. Our enemy tries to make you doubt the identity given to you by declaration of the Father through the work of the Son. That is Satan's main front, main battlefront in your life. When we talk about spiritual warfare, right, people, you know, they think about all kinds of strange phenomena, right? You think about levitating, hovering six feet above the bed, frothing at the mouth, you know, chanting red rum or some kind of obscure sort of, you know, demon looking weird sort of thing going on, right? I mean, that's what we think about. I mean, at our church, we believe that the clear sign of demon possession is that you get drowsy in church, okay? Person next to you look drowsy, demon possessed, okay? You grab them by their forehead and as loud as you can, you scream, demons out! All right, and, and, and they will never go to sleep again, I promise, all right? Question, does Satan do stuff like that? Right, stuff like, you know, the weird stuff, the eyes rolling in the back of the head? Sure, I mean, I suppose, but that's not his main battlefront. If you're looking for him there, you're probably not going to find him. Or a lot of times, people will see Satan in, in some other temptation, like sex. You know, in college, I remember some girl would walk by and look like she had her clothes shrink-wrapped on her and and one of my friends would be like, oh, the devil, three o'clock, and she's hot, you know? <laughs> Does Satan tempt like that? Sure, right? I've had times where certain physical temptations were so acute and seemed so directed or targeted at some area of my weakness that I knew there had to be something behind it. But again, sexual temptation is not his main battlefront. Satan's not out in the wilderness showing Jesus pictures of naked women, Right? I'm not trying to be crude. I'm just telling you that's not what he's doing. Satan's main front in our lives is attacking our identity in the gospel through the work of the Son. Satan tries to get us to see ourselves apart from what the God, of what God declares over us through Christ's work on the cross. He wants us to evaluate how successful we are, how morally good we are, how we compare to everyone else, what everybody else thinks about us, and then to determine our self-worth based on that. So he is always whispering in your ear, saying to you, how many people like you? How many people approve of you? That's how much you're worth. How does your success compare to other people that are your age? Right? Because your success determines how valuable you are. How are you doing morally compared to everybody else? Because that determines whether or not God approves of you. And when you listen to that, he has you. Forget sex and levitation. That's all the little stuff. All right? This is what he is doing. Now, just as important, watch this. What does Jesus do when he is attacked? He goes back to the statement declared over him in the baptism. And in the power of the Spirit, he looks back at Satan and says, No, no. God's word says that he is pleased with me. I don't need these stones to become bread to prove I'm the son of God. I don't need God to catch me falling off a tower to prove that he is well pleased of me. God has declared it, and I believe him. So what are you supposed to do when you face the onslaught of worry, depression, or guilt? You are to go back to the words declared over you at your baptism, your union with Jesus. You see, I know what is happening to many of you. You look at your life and you're seeing some failure. Maybe it's a moral failure of some kind. And that failure is slowly seeping into your soul, becoming a part of who you are. There is a voice that is whispering to you, you are a failure. You're no good. 
You're not worth anything because these things now define you. No, there has been a declaration spoken over you that declares a greater reality than your sin. It says that Christ has taken your place and given you his righteousness. You are now a new creation in him. He has washed away your guilt. He has a purpose for you in his kingdom. He has filled you with power and a hope and a future. You are my beloved son or daughter. And I am well pleased in you. Right now, Satan is whispering to some of you. Morally, you are a failure. You're no good. And if he could distract you from what I am saying right now, you can forget the exorcism and all that stuff. This is what he is doing to you at this moment. He is saying, you are no good. I love how the old hymn says it. This one's so old and archaic, I don't know anywhere that it's actually sung anymore. But there's a line in this hymn that says, Long may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. Here's something that most people don't realize, by the way. Both Satan and God will speak to you about your guilt. But they do it in two totally different ways. You see, Satan takes what you did and he tears down who you are. Jesus starts with what he has made you and calls you upward, away from your guilt. Satan pushes you down in despair. Jesus calls you upward in resurrection hope. If you are here this morning feeling the weight of condemnation, Set yourself free by hearing the voice of the Father speaking of you in Christ. You are my beloved son or daughter. I am well pleased in you. That's your new identity. Right now, some of you are dealing with depression. Other people are not pleased with you. Co-workers, friends, maybe even your spouse. And they're starting to tell you, you're no good. Maybe it's directly, maybe it's just by insinuation. Maybe there's giving you a vibe that says, not pleased with you. And you're starting to believe it. No, you need to hear, you are my son. I am well pleased in you. Because in that statement, you have the absolute approval of the only one whose opinion really matters. If you are depressed, it's for one of two reasons this morning. You either doubt God's approval or you don't give God's approval enough weight in your life. God's opinion of you doesn't matter as much to you is the opinions of other people. You depend more on their approval than you do God's approval. It's interesting, the word for glory in the Bible is the word Hebrew word kabod. And kabod literally means weight. So when you give glory to something, you give it weight. And so what you do is you give weight to the opinions of people. You give glory to people that you should give to God. If you are depressed this morning, it's either because you don't understand that God's approval over you is total, and that his opinion, his approval is the only one who really matters anyway, right? It's either a faith problem or an idolatry problem. It's always remarkable to me how much this theme shows up in movies, just not the God part of it, just the idolatry part. And you go back to an old movie, Chariots of Fire, one of my favorite old movies. You got the guy, the, the, um, the guy in there who, who doesn't know God, and he thinks his whole existence is being able to win the Olympics. And he makes this statement in the middle there. He says, when that gun goes off, I've got 100 yards to prove the worth of my existence. Or as I brought it to you several times, uh, uh, the great Rocky movie, the only really good one, Rocky 1. Right? Rocky 1, where, 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 where Rocky Balboa is talking with Adrian. Right? And he says to her in the middle of that skating rink, she's like, why are you doing it? Why are you going to fight the world champ? You know he's going to beat 
you like a rented mule. She didn't say that, but that's my paraphrase. And, she's, and he says back to her, he's like, he's like, because if I can go 15 rounds with the world champ, then I'll know I'm not a bum. I got to do this to prove that I'm worse. I was even watching Cheers the other night, right? Okay, I know. It's not going that deep. But in this one episode, they're, they're, they're supposed to jump out of an airplane. And at the last minute, Norm, you know Norm? Norm decides he's going to do it. And his explanation, it, just, it made me laugh out loud. Norm says, Norm says, I'll tell you why I'm going to do this. Because I got one shot now to prove that my life is not a waste and has been worth something. I was like, by jumping out of an airplane, you're going to prove the worth of your existence. It's just, especially for guys, there's a continual, I got to win this battle. I got to make this money. Right? I gotta, I've got to, in college, I've got to score with this girl. Right? Or I've got to dominate this athletic competition. It's then that I'll know my existence is worthwhile. Some of you are worried about the future. You look at your own circumstances and you say, right now, you're like, am I all alone? Am I going to be taken care of? Does God love me? Does he remember me? And, and what Satan is saying to you is, if he loves you, you could tell that stone to be turned into bread you'd be healed this would work out for you don't believe what god says and has declared over you you're my son what you need to do is you need to hear the voice of god that says you are my son i will never leave you to wander see ultimately this is going to be how you deal with all your sin you start with who you are in christ and what you'll find is that your bodily cravings don't exercise as much control over you You'll find that your irrational fears dissipate. You'll find that silly jealousies and drives that hurt you lose their control over your heart. It is believing the gospel on a day-by-day basis that is how you live a victorious Christian life. This is given in symbol to you at your baptism. It is a symbol that you are to fall back on. Jesus was baptized for you and heard a declaration at that baptism so that you could hear that same declaration when you were baptized, showing that you identify with him. Now, is baptism necessary to save you? No. Right? Salvation happens when you accept what God has done for you in Christ. Romans 10, 9 and 10 say that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. Verse 8 says salvation is as close as your mouth and your heart, not as close as the nearest baptismal pool. Right? It's right here. You just receive what Christ has done. You're like, well, if I've done that, then what's the importance of the symbol? Right? Why go through that? Well, the symbol is supposed to serve as a marker in your life. I often think back about when I got baptized, 16 years old. Right? I remember how the pastor, after he made me give my confession of faith that I was trusting Christ, stood me up there in front of all these people that I knew, and he says, I now baptize you as my brother, and he put me into the water. And in that, I visualize the old life of shame and condemnation and guilt getting put in the water getting put into the grave with jesus right and then when i come up out of the water in my mind i visualize that new life what christ has made me and that forms a marker that separates the past of me and the future with christ it is a marker and a symbol that i go back to baptism is not salvation but it pictures everything that salvation is and that is union with christ in a public profession or proclamation of your faith you're like well i believe all that i just haven't gone through the symbol right i understand but you understand that at the end of the day it is a command you're going to tell me 
that you believe that Jesus took your place, that he underwent a brutal death in your place, and you won't even be baptized to show your identity with him. Right? Does that, does that make sense? When Jesus says, identify with me, he gave us a baptism. What he really went through for us was the cross. And then now you say, well, I just don't really do that. It's too much trouble or it's too lazy or I would get wet and be embarrassed and I, I, I'd feel weird. He's like, I went through the death for you and this is how you're supposed to identify with me and you're not going to do that. Right? I mean, also, if you just let me say this, what does it say to Jesus when you won't obey the simplest of his commands? How could you possibly persuade others that Jesus is Lord of all your life when you won't even follow him here? Hey, and by the way, you ever think about this? Maybe it's not for you that you're being baptized. Maybe it's for others to be able to see and be able to be moved by what they're seeing from you. You're like, well, I don't think I'm ready to be baptized. I know I've accepted Jesus, but I got a lot of growing to do first. Well, look, if you understand the whole point of this story, as I've tried to explain, your baptism is to mark your identity in Christ. It is something that is supposed to be a catalyst for you to grow, to overcome temptation. When your enemy comes at you like he did Jesus, you were to fall back on this. Baptism is something we are to fall back on, not strive forward to. It's been awesome to see all the people that were baptized last fall when we did this, who are now active in ministry and growing. A lot of you are going to join them. You're going to make it official today. Right? And you're going to go forward into a new part of your life. You're like, well, I ain't got no clothes. Well, you weren't paying attention at the beginning. We got them for you. No, unfortunately, you won't get this attractive pastoral fashion line swimwear that I'm wearing up here. We got black shirts and shorts of all sizes for everybody. You're like, well, yeah, but I was baptized as a baby. I got baptized, my parents baptized me in the priest. I understand, I do, I really do. And I'm not trying to rip on your tradition, so please do not interpret what I'm about to say as criticizing your tradition. But for many of you, you were baptized as a kid. And that was a special moment. It was part of your tradition. Right? And I'm not trying to say to you, you did something wrong. Shame on you. Right? Or I'm not saying, hey, your baptism didn't take. I got to do it again. No, it was a beautiful and meaningful ceremony. But baptism is supposed to be evidence of your decision to follow Christ. Ninety-six times the New Testament talks about baptism. Right? Let me read to you every single time that it is after the decision. I mean, excuse me. Every single one of those, it is after the decision is made. Right? I've been to some infant baptisms. Questions that I always have when I see a baby being baptized is, is that baby really aware that he or she is a sinner and putting faith in Christ? Does this mean anything to Christ and to others that this person is choosing to put faith in them? Right? Is this a public declaration of their love for Jesus? Well, obviously no. This ceremony is more about their parents' faith. So if you were baptized as a baby, should you get baptized again? I would say yes, I did. My wife did. As an indication of our own faith. Thank God for your parents' faith, but it is time to celebrate your own. And listen, it's not like you're rejecting your old baptism or your parents' traditions. Their hope in baptizing you, their hope was that one day you would grow up to choose to put faith in Christ. So you should look at getting baptized again of your own choosing as a fulfillment of what your parents intended for you. They were hoping that one day you would trust Christ, and now you have. 
look at this baptism as ratification of the decision that they made for you. Listen, I've baptized lots of people at this church, again, who were baptized as babies. I've never had one of them come up out of the water and say, well, that was a total waste. That was way overrated. Right? Maybe, maybe that one will happen today. I don't know. I can't guarantee it. But I have baptized lots of people, on the other hand, who said to me after it was done, I'm really glad that I made that affirmation. And you're like, well, I believe in Christ, and I'm ready to declare that publicly. But i tell you what, what's holding me back is I don't want to become a Baptist. I'm ready to follow Jesus, but I'm not ready for all the, the Baptist you know, stuff. Start taking all the stereotypes that go along with that, you know? Calling everyone brother, pulling out, pouring out all my beer, boycotting Disney, not celebrating Halloween, refusing to read the Harry Potter books. I don't want to do any of that stuff, all right? I understand, okay? I feel it. But baptism is primarily identification with Christ, not a denomination, right? I know that some of you aren't ready to become a part of a particular denomination. That's not what we're offering just asking you to identify publicly with Christ. You're like, oh, but my family, I, we didn't talk about this. It would totally surprise them. Okay, first of all, we have cameras. We will record it, right? And we can give it to your family. You're like, well, it would surprise them. Think of what Jesus' baptism did here to his family. Right? They're sitting there, you know, standing on the shore. I was like, what the? What's that guy doing? He's out in the water getting baptized. You saw the video of Matt Allison that we began this service with. Right? Here's Matt Allison a guy who grew up in a pastor's home, a guy that's on our staff that's going to get baptized this morning. Because he says, I knew it with my head, but it had never become real in my heart. You should have courage. Lots of people have taken this step at our church, and it's, it's your time. You're like, well, I still got questions. We have counselors who will talk with you for a few minutes before we do anything, okay? That's what, that's, that's what will happen when we end this service. I'll talk with you for a few minutes and answer any of those questions. You're like, but it's Earth Week, and I don't want to waste water. I, now you're just making stuff up, okay? <laughs> but if you must know, we haven't emptied the waters out since last fall, and we're going to use the same water, okay? <laughs> if that makes you feel better. All right, let me, let me summarize, okay? Make sure you got all this. Have you, at some point in your life, trusted in Christ as Lord and Savior? If the answer to that question is yes, then the second question is, have you been baptized since becoming a follower of Jesus? If the answer is not for sure, yes, then today is your day. I know your heart's beating fast, and that's because this applies to you, okay? Some of you have been hovering right on this side of the line of faith, and you need to this morning take that step and publicly identify it with Christ. In just a minute, at all of our campuses, we're going to do a song. All right, and right now at all of our campuses, you're going to have a chance to respond. We're going to sing, right? And while we're doing that, while we are worshiping, you are going to get up and respond, okay? As our worship teams at all of our campuses get in place, let me ask you, if you would, if you would just bow your heads with me for just a moment. Let me pray over this. Okay? With your heads bowed, if you're comfortable with that, if not, you can look right at me, that's okay. The important decision behind baptism is receiving Christ. Have you done that? The gospel is an announcement that Jesus is Lord. Have you surrendered to him as Lord? The gospel is an announcement that Jesus has done everything in your place. Have you received that? If not, then right now, where you sit, at whatever campus you are, say, yes, Lord Jesus, I surrender to you, and I receive what you have done for me. If you've never made that decision, 
If you've never received Christ as Lord and Savior, right now, say it to him in your heart, in your own words. Jesus, I receive you as Lord and Savior. Now let me ask this. If you have made that decision, either this morning, last week, on Easter, a year ago, 10 years ago, 30 years ago, and you have never since making that decision been baptized as a public declaration of your faith at all of our campuses, would you just lift your hand really quickly? Put it up. Don't be embarrassed. Just hold it up for just a minute. I see there's probably a dozen right here in the room that I see. All right? I'm going to pray over you. And then when our worship teams come, you're going to respond. If the person next to you is a friend of yours or a spouse or something, then by all means, you can take them with you. All right? Father, I pray in Jesus' name for those who are either receiving Christ or those who are going to make that decision to be baptized. I pray that today would be a marker that would fundamentally and totally change the rest of their life as they grasp and believe and live out the new creation in Christ. I ask that, Lord, in Jesus, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.